Have you ever wondered whether think tanks are pushing a narrative or just saying what you don't want to hear? There's a growing distrust in American institutions and a level of political uncertainty that makes you question even the research experts. Ryan Williams joins me today to talk about what the Claremont Institute is doing to impact policy and how they're holding the line against insanities from every direction. I'm James Polis. This is Zero Hour. Ryan Williams is the president of the Claremont Institute, a think tank devoted to, quote, restoring the principles of the American founding, unquote. He's taught American politics and political philosophy and now resides in sunny California with his wife and son. Welcome, Ryan. Thank you, James. And a new daughter, eight months old. That's beautiful. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, California is still a place where you can have children, contrary to, uh, to popular belief. It is true. I mean, it's hard, but you can still do it. You can still do it. Okay, so let's dig into this. Uh, Claremont Institute out there in Claremont, California, uh, not commonly thought of as the epicenter of uh, anything political, really. Um, and yet here you are. It's been a big year for Claremont and obviously all through the Trump years, uh, lots of stuff going on, uh, lots of action, lots of criticism. Uh, just catch us up. What is the Claremont Institute in 2023? Uh, well, we, uh, we've always been in the teaching business and bringing the principles of the founding to bear on our current crises, whatever those may be. We've been in business now for over 40 years, so it's been an interesting game from 1979 up till now. Today, we're mainly focused on uh, figuring out a way, holding constitutional principles in mind always to speak to legislators, to teach uh, people who are influencing the national conversation, whether it be in their mid-20s or up to mid-career, uh, to help legislators and policy staffers understand what the significant, most significant threats are to the American way of life and what to do about them and how to go about it in a way that uh, doesn't betray principles but adapts principles to a very difficult and changed time, uh, obviously from 1776. Well, we're seeing change unfold so rapidly now that some people might think like, you know, can an intellectual yeah. actually keep up with what's going on? You know, do we have the luxury of actually thinking about what we're doing before we do it? Uh, well, I hope we do because we have to have that luxury. We have to make time for that luxury. Uh, acting without thinking is uh, the way of madness. So um, <clears throat> we have to do it. So uh, we got to make that time. All right. So what are you doing? I mean, you look at what the other think tanks in, in, in town have done. You look at, I mean, Heritage, AEI, there are a bunch of them. Uh, it's the big institutions. They got the brass doors in D.C. <laughs> really just sort of tied into that beltway world. Claremont's different. How has that helped? Well, I mean, we've been out on the West Coast for a long time. Uh, we've expanded, of course, to Washington in recent years, uh, just out of necessity. Uh, it's kept us out of the bubble and out of the beltway, which allowed us to think more deeply about these problems. And we've always had one foot in the academic world and one foot in the political world. And academic in the best sense, that is, try to think through these problems that are, we're facing today to appreciate the forms that modern liberalism and progressivism take and how they've evolved over the last century and understand that may, they may have changed over the last century, but their, their core remains the same, which is they've never liked the U.S. Constitution. They've never liked the separation of powers. They really thought it was the thing standing in the way of heaven on earth. And so that's, that's sort of the driving principled, um, or the principled driver, I should say, of progressivism. Now, its latest woke iteration, uh, maybe born in the 60s and now flowering fully, 
has at its core the same thing, which is the U.S. Constitution, the American way of life, really stand in the way of justice and perfection uh, and happiness for everyone. We disagree with that, obviously, but that's the core of, of what we're facing. Well, so how bad is it? What's, what is the, the one piece of this beast that is the most troubling to you right now? Uh, I would say that the extent to which uh, rulemaking and policymaking at the federal level and then with its tendrils down into the states happens more or less completely outside the purview of people who are elected to do stuff about policy. So the, in the administrative state, the deep state, the bureaucracy, call it what you want. It's in all 50 states and it's uh, a behemoth in Washington as well. And it, it really severs the link, the, the core link of American republicanism between the people uh, and their elected representatives. I mean, we're a republic, you're supposed to be able to control policy uh, and, and be able to have some effect on it guided by what we hope is enlightened public opinion. But for the last at least 30 years, if not in, in embryonic form, 50, 60, 70 years, we've chipped away at that link and now it's, it's uh, very tenuous. You mentioned the, the DC Outpost uh, Center for the American Way of Life. Uh, how, how's that uh, arm of Claremont uh, chipping away at, uh, at the, the administrative beast? Well, we, uh, well, in a sense, I mean, we've, <clears throat> this argument that we've been making for now 30 years, it really took off in the 90s about the roots of this problem, that is the bureaucracy, administrative state. Uh, it's now, now everyone in town is talking about it, and we were really the first. We started in a scholarly way or in an intellectual way, and now it's more applied. So we're kind of the go-to place to talk through both the principled side, how we got here, and then what to do about it. So our colleague, Arthur Millick, you work with us sometimes, James, uh, runs the Center for the American Way of Life. It's now three years old. Uh, Arthur, I mean, anyone on the Hill who has a problem with this modern way of doing government, uh, they will often say behind the scenes, you need to talk to Claremont, you need to read to Claremont stuff. And so a permanent presence there in DC has, DC has helped us uh, do that more directly and, and you know, in the space of a day rather than a month when we're out there next. You think the internet has really changed the game where it sometimes, you know, before uh, everyone was on their phones, you, it would sometimes take months or even years to get just one basic talking point sort of pushed out and disseminated into the halls of power. Things are moving of faster course. now, right? Now it can take six, seven minutes. Uh, yeah. It seems like sometimes, maybe 90 at the most. But the entire press corps can take its cue from social media, especially X. And uh, it's amazing to watch it in real time. It's... It, and it's, it's, you know, it's always hard to say whether it's a, a central force commanding it, usually not, or if it's just emergent behavior. Uh, every, everyone who thinks more or less the same in D.C., which is a lot of the media establishment and a lot of the policy establishment, left of center at best, will turn out the same narrative. And it seems to be on everyone's lips within a couple hours. So it's a bit of a double-edged sword. You can push out those ideas that you want to get disseminated faster, but then you get the blowback faster. Yeah. And you get the critics yeah. constantly circling. It is. Uh, it's. Um, I mean, it's, some, it's a place we've struggled and are always trying to get better at, which is how do you do communications and especially strategic communications well. It's something that most think tanks don't do that well, uh, and it's a, a, a way in which we're outclassed by by some of our opponents on the other side. Yeah, well, Claremont's been, uh, I think, pretty effective uh, mucking around in D.C., whether it's uh, helping out the the Trump administration or, you know, just educating lawmakers and making sure that they're kind of up to speed and, and understand what time it is, as, as the phrase goes. 
Uh, of course, this has led to criticism. Mm -hmm. uh, if you're, you know, a, a button-down uh, establishment institution, you try to keep your name sort of out of the papers, and then you know the the, the consequences for your relevance will will uh, sort of unfold from there. Uh, but I just want to run through some of these mm -hmm. attacks because uh, I think it's it's revealing sort of who it is who's lodging them, what their kind of attack vectors are, and then sort of how you have have chosen to respond and through through deeds as much. As words, uh, so this is just kind of a uh, a highlight reel. Um, uh, Claremont favors sweeping theoretical discussions to actual policy <laughs> debates, detachment from practical politics. What might be the real world effects of the institute's recent work? Uh, this is another piece. Um, uh, something detached from reality in this story about how one part of the upper middle class is going to save the country from the other part. Uh, just one more here. I mean, this one, I, I love this one. Um, Claremont pushing deeper into this idea of natural rights, which justify any means necessary to preserve the republic. This is uh, just a money quote here. That's how Claremont goes from this quirky intellectual outfit to one of the main intellectual architects of trying to overthrow the republic. So uh, speaking the language of the founders and uh, protecting the, the founding understanding of uh, the republic is in fact destroying the republic. And if only you just went yeah. back to being quirky, irrelevant, safe, just head in the clouds, then, then we'd all be fine. I mean, you know, it's easy to laugh at some of this stuff, but yeah. this has become a drumbeat as Claremont's uh, profile has increased. You got an outpost on both sides of the of the country actually doing things, actually have that reputation for the people that, you know, if, if you want to understand the moment, you got to talk to these guys. How do you respond to these attacks? Uh, I would, I mean, I fundraise off of them, of course. <laughs> uh, you know, we're, we're a nonprofit, so we don't sell anything really. Uh, so we have to raise all of our money to do what we do. And uh, we've had a, a run of some pretty good years, so that's good. I, I would say that, you know, if you're not taking flack, you're not over the target. That's a good mantra in today's media environment. So we wear it as a badge of honor. Uh, of course, we have to try to correct the more egregious slanders when they come. But look, this is the sorry state of affairs we're in. If you're defending the regime of the American founders, uh, the natural rights that you mentioned, uh, rights to life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, property, all the rest, limited government, separation of powers, I mean, to defend all those things is now, I'm sorry to say, on campuses in the 90s, defending that sort of thing was called white supremacy, xenophobic, imperialism. And now it's more or less called that in K through 12 institutions by major, major media operations, by The Guardian, by even some former conservatives writing hit pieces against us. So uh, to the extent that they actually take the time to understand us, uh, and a, very occasionally they do, uh, those are the better ones to read. But the, the rank attack, at, attack press, uh, one just has to let slide off one's back. Help people understand these former conservatives <laughs> uh, who are now suddenly uh, knives, knives drawn for Claremont. Yeah, well, What's they, going on there? They might bristle at my characterization of them as that. Um, it's, you know, the, the, the Washington establishment was disproportionately the second generation of neoconservatives and maybe a half generation after. Um, you know, not everyone, but cer cer some folks at the Weekly Standard, Bill Kristol and others, were very influential in Washington and the Bush administration, the George W. Bush administration, uh, plan sort of building on some capital they built in the H.W. Bush administration. And their stars have fallen, partly because of the Iraq war and the way they conducted it, the arguments they made on its behalf. Uh, and its failure and the withdrawal from Afghanistan reminded folks of that, even though it happened under Biden. Um, and a lot of them, I think, um, are very wary of the some of the populist strands that emerged when Trump won the presidency in 2016. 
whether it's on topics of immigration, which they'd always parted ways with a good portion of the Republican base on, uh, foreign policy, you know, the sort of normal Republican voter is much more wary of always going abroad uh, to do good than the establishment was in, in Washington in the 90s and the 2000s. So, you know, they uh, partly it's um, sour grapes at the loss of influence, and partly it's a pivot to continue to be able to fund themselves. And then a lot for, I don't want to just be cynical, for a lot of them it's a matter of conviction. They, they just really fundamentally disagree with the more populist and nationalist strands of American conservatism and republicanism, which have been around for the better part of half a century, but are now kind of more dominant. Well, it's been fascinating to see this sort of character arc of, of the neoconservative movement. I mean, back in the day, you had guys who were hawks on foreign policy, but also hawks on domestic yeah. policy. They wanted to keep federal government under control, want to keep crime down, not afraid of sort of ruffling feathers in uh, maintaining law and order. Um, and as time went on, you know, one of those wings has just kind of withered up and fallen off. And you've got this really just fire breathing, you yeah. know, dismantle Russia. This is the only way as if uh, that that summed up the whole of neoconservatism. Why do you think the domestic part is dead now? Yeah, it's a good question. I think the main ex explanation for it is um, uh, the, the nerve center of this movement was always based in Washington and had its power base in Washington. And it really didn't then and still does not now fundamentally think the way that we do government these days with all of the bureaucratic apparatus I discussed, expert rule outside political control. They don't really have a fundamental problem with that and they, they never have. So that whole establishment, the normal way we do government, has steadily drifted left over recent decades. So they've drifted with them. Um, I don't want to keep picking on Bill Kristol, but I mean, he was kind of a fire-breathing pro-life guy. And he, not too long ago, he was campaigning for and raising, helping raise money for, I think, don't quote me, uh, for Terry McAuliffe in a Virginia governor's race. I mean, that's, it's quite a way we've come. Yeah, the, the bag man of the Clintons. Um, <laughs> Foreign policy, uh, it, it's, it's not just the neocons. You look at what happened to the left. Um, I mean, yeah, you got, you got Biden who really just wanted out of Afghanistan. Um, and so there's, there's still a, a little bit of a, a divide there on the left as far as interventionism goes. Uh, but just the overwhelming power of the interventionists. Interventionist um, for its own sake, almost, uh, in pursuit of, you know, really just, just trying to make that stereotype of the global American empire mm come true. Uh, not the way it used to be on the left uh, all the time. I mean, the, the whole Bernie wing of the party, that's been zapped away. You know, Glenn Greenwald and those guys have pretty much been been hounded out of the party. Uh, Claremont doesn't just do domestic policy. There's a, a foreign policy school of thought uh, mm -hmm. that's been carried on through through Claremont, through uh, whether it's the late, great Angelo Cotavilla or, or others. Uh, what's the distinction there? And uh, and how much traction uh, is, is the Claremont view on foreign policy gaining right now? Yeah, well, the um, you know the original presidential constitutional oath, and for many others uh, copied in the military and and even across legislatures in the country, is to protect the constitution from enemies foreign and domestic. So those are two sides of the same coin. Um, uh, you know, Ange you mentioned Angelo Cotavilla, but really um, the two figures in our intellectual firmament at the Claremont Institute were Harry Jaffa, not just on domestic policy, but on how to understand America, how to understand Lincoln, uh, and this lesser known scholar, uh, Bill Rood, Harold William Rood, who taught many, a few generations at least of students how to think about foreign policy. Uh, as you mentioned, we were early critics of the Democracy Project in Iraq. 
uh, even early critics within a month or so of, of the intervention in Afghanistan, not necessarily that they weren't warranted at all, but that we were we were focusing on abstractions uh, and trying to fight ideologies rather than doing the hard work of normal uh, intervention abroad, which should be focused on a clear objective, a clear end that is purpose, and tied to means that will to carry that out. The way we've done foreign policy over the last century started really with progressivism at the turn of the 20th century on the right and the left. Um, and uh, the, the view was, rather than pursuing, say, the foreign policy of John Quincy Adams, which had this nice, tight connection between what do we want to accomplish? How can we do it? If we can't do it, then we shouldn't even state the goal. It's, it's futile. It will embarrass us. We will cultivate contempt abroad. That would be bad. The, the view at the turn of the 20th century from Woodrow Wilson and then folks on the right as well in the Republican Party uh, was that this is a new era. Uh, progress and science have meant that uh, tyranny is no longer a huge problem. We, we now really can go abroad and democratize the world, create it in our image. It will be good for us because everyone will be a liberal democracy. They won't go to war as much. Uh, human rights will flourish. Human and natural rights will flourish abroad. And really, you, you know, if you look at George W. Bush's second inaugural, it could have been written by Woodrow Wilson. And that, that run of over now a century uh, is, uh, is powerful. I mean, it's beginning to wane and influence a bit, partly because of Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, but it still, I mean, it still has its grips in official Washington on both sides of the aisle. Big tech and big data have shown us time after time that they're not on our side. And yet we're giving them access to record our personal lives 24-7 through our phones. Even when your phone is off, the microphones and cameras and location trackers still work. And that's just the tech people. What about your personal security? When it comes to the crazy ex, someone stalking you, or even trying to blackmail you? It happens more than you might think. That's why I use the Refuge Ghost Sleeve. It's made in America, from American buffalo leather, and it blocks 5G signals that other Faraday sleeves miss. It's the only Faraday sleeve that blocks signal and sound. They added sound blocking panels on each side that keep conversations private. This isn't some clunky metal box, it, it looks cool. It's easy to put your phone in and to take it out of throughout the day. Whenever you want privacy, you can't be too careful these days. And the Refuge Ghost Sleeve can help keep you safe. Visit refugeprivacy.com today. Use code ZERO to save 10% off your order. That's refugeprivacy.com, promo code ZERO for 10% off. There are some who say that uh, that the real reason uh, Trump became such an enemy of so many in the establishment <laughs> is no wars. Yeah, um, <clears throat> plausible, uh, but even Trump, you know, even Trump did some things that uh, that did not really satisfy uh, his base. I mean, when you look at a guy like Steve Mnuchin, you know, his economic policies, yeah, interest rates are low or whatever, uh, but um, not not really what was what was promised. You know, the wall never really went up. Um, what you're talking about, uh, as far as the the Claremont agenda, the, the school of thought, the way of reasoning about the founding and how it, it continues to be a lodestar today, um, at a time when so many of the critics on the left are like, this is not a normal candidate, this is not a normal <laughs> party, norms, norms, norms. What you're talking about is normal American stuff, and it always mm -hmm. has been. Um, and even you know, you look at you look at polling, you look at where the where the the center of gravity is politically. Um, you got a lot of Americans behind that that spirit and that school of thought to this very day, even if they're not writing white papers about it. It's there's something intuitive and uh, organic about that kind of Americanist 
approach to America, if I can put it that way. <laughs> so, so why is it that there isn't a party that fully represents those Americans? <laughs> well, I think a big part of it is the um, is as we've been talking about a bit the way we do business in Washington. I mean, both parties, in a way, are creatures of the transformed way in which we do politics. Uh, which is mainly through bureaucracy insulated from government control. So back in, in previous eras, uh, a Trump would have been much more effective in the sense that he was a national politician cobbling together a national coalition on a set of issues. He runs on them, he sells them, he wins on them, and then his party helps him carry them out. Uh, unfortunately, now you have really a uniparty in D.C. Uh, with Republicans and Democrats, not all of them, of course, um, a, a super majority of the Democratic sort of elite coalition and probably a bare majority of the Republican coalition, that's changing, but it's there, uh, that really any critique of this system and any disruptor of this system is a threat. It's a threat not only to how they think expert policy ought to rule in Washington, but it's also a threat to their livelihoods and the series of concentric circles of contractors, uh, think tanks, NGOs, who rely on the system for their livelihoods. So it really has become a new regime grafted onto the old regime. Uh, we, we've gotten some grief from quarters, whether it be neoconservative, uh, that is, we Claremont neoconservative are on the left saying, yeah, what is this regime talk? This is some sort of conspiracy theory. Uh, but we just, by that, we just mean the way of doing politics, the sort of way of life of a country politically. Uh, that's one way of talking about it. That's what we mean. And it's something new. I mean, it's this fourth branch of government and it's um, valets of various sorts, intellectual, financial, and political, uh, are a real force in D.C. They're the dominant force still. Uh, Richard Nixon, uh, I know this might be controversial, uh, was planning to really disrupt it when it really started getting some real um, traction in the 70s. He got derailed for a variety of reasons and had to resign, of course. I think Trump, in a way, wanted to do something similar. Whether he was a deep student of Nixon or not, I'm not sure. Uh, but it was, again, that the, um, the antibodies were activated in a similar way. And the mass of official Washington, including the bureaucracy and the intelligence community, went after him. Uh, hammer and tongs, and uh, in many ways succeeded in stifling not only him, uh, that's less important, Trump, but the movement that he stood for, perhaps maybe a new coalition of normal Americans who were sick of stupid wars, as Trump put it, uh, wanted a more modest foreign policy and wanted to get some semblance of control of their government back. Uh, that's still very much a work in progress, whether Trump leads that charge or someone else. One of the great Trump quotes, I think it was a, even a Trump tweet, was, I just want to stop the world from killing itself. That's, who could disagree with that? Um, <clears throat> I think they still teach this in schools. Uh, your mileage may vary. Um, separation of powers. Uh -huh. sort of basic, you know, foundational principle mm -hmm. of, uh, of government in the U.S. Uh, you got your legislative, legislative, you got your judiciary, and you got your executive. Mm -hmm. um, you look at the Biden administration right now, you look at, at what happened to Trump, uh, not a great time for the executive branch right now. Uh, yes, you've got all these alphabet agencies and, uh, and a lot of people associate that with sort of, well, this is what, this is who the executive is now. Uh, but really this is kind of a crea uh, creature of the, the legislature, right? Where they just keep delegating away yeah. their constitutional authorities and then they grow up this sort of uh, legislature that is unelected. You can't sort of, you know, sometimes you don't even get to to know who's representing you. Uh, how do you fix that? Is, how, do, how do you, do, do we need to somehow 
uh, refresh the executive branch? Uh, <laughs> is do is it does it does it come down to just like finally getting a president in there who can really knock heads? What's the what's the solution? Yeah, well, it would to really reform it. It would take the president uh, and the Congress, um, and and also some of the courts. Although the uh, a, a, a big coalition of a president who led a coalition, put together a national electoral coalition, including with a lot of coattails for congressional members. And there's some energy already there to do something about it, but there's lack of expertise about what exactly to do about it. Um, so a president who ran on this issue and sold it and then won on it could do a lot, but he would need the legislature to really do something deep and lasting. Now, there's plenty that could be done from the executive branch. Um, but it's limited. I mean, the Trump administration didn't exactly execute as well as it could have, partly for personnel reasons, on a lot of this just executive action stuff, winding down executive orders. But really, the the the, the way the bureaucracy works in Washington, uh, the the Obamacare not Obamacare, but the um, the DACA program is a perfect exa example. So Obama pushes through pretty much by through a memo, not even an official executive order. This DACA program legalizing all these. Um, children of illegal immigrants and uh and the trump administration says okay well they did it with an email or a memo we can undo it with that i have a phone and a pen. that's right so if they could do it with that we can undo it but the official washington line through a bunch of arcane old legislation the administrative procedure act and all this basically the court said no you can't undo it you have to go through the normal process of uh of a comment by the public on these even because Obama did it quickly, no, you Trump administration, you need to spend the better part of two years. And they just, they couldn't unwind it. So the, the center of gravity in DC is such that the, you say it's bad news for the executive branch, but Democratic executives, Democratic presidents push on a lot more open doors uh, than, well, I shouldn't say a lot more. They push on open doors on especially a lot of issues where they have shared sympathies with the bureaucracy. And Republican presidents push mostly on closed doors or jam doors. And that, that is a huge problem. To really fix that, you would need a supermajority of Congress, probably. And that's a tall order these days. I mean, we've been in gridlock 51, 52% on either side, gridlock in Washington, D.C. since the 90s. That's fairly abnormal in American politics. So neither of these parties has really made the supermajoritarian coalitional argument and then executed on it to really do something and fix this. So in, in light of all that, what would, you know, what would the founders make of the situation that Donald <laughs> Trump is in right now? Yeah. Here's a guy, he's clearly ambitious, uh, but he does show some civic devotion. He doesn't have to be running for president again. He's probably just going to take some more lumps if he gets in, uh, but he's, he's, he's doing it. Um, uh, ambition is good, but it needs to be channeled and controlled, according, according to the founders. Uh, it's going to help to have a, a powerful president in order to restabilize the, the division of, of powers. Uh, and yet, um, I think there's a lot of frustration among Americans who, yeah, they want to vote for their, their preferred candidate for president. But so much of their political life is just shrinking down to, okay, uh, every four years you just sort of trudge to your, you know, hope this one goes through and drop it in the box um, and then probably get let down. Um, does this point to the kind of constitutional crisis that the founders were afraid of? Of course, yeah. And uh, look, if you stymie a people's desires for long enough, uh, you create the, um, and I'm not suggesting this is what Trump's about, really. Um, but you create the conditions for a very destabilized republic, 
see your Roman history, for example. Uh, and, uh, you know, the people will cry out for somebody to do something about it, perhaps even extra constitutionally. That is a dangerous territory that we, every well-meaning and uh, intellectually serious and civic-minded person in the United States should want to forestall. And, and uh, we do certainly at the Claremont Institute. So that's a real pickle. I mean, if you have a government that's this unresponsive for that long, if you look at the polling about people fearing their government, the trust they have in Congress, I mean, the, the fearing government is over a majority, and that's been the case for decades. Trust in Congress is sometimes in the single digits. It barely breaks 10, 12, 15 percent. Uh, I mean, I think the founders would not be surprised at that state of affairs if you showed them the last hundred years about the degeneration of the system they set up, the collapse of the separation of powers, the relocation of so much authority and rulemaking and um, financial impact into this class of people who are irremovable more or less from their positions and set policy every day. I mean, Madison and the Federalists said if you concentrate the executive, the judicial, and the legislative power in one branch, that is the very definition of tyranny. It's what we've had in the administrative state of bureaucracy in various forms. It's messier than just that for the better part of a half century. Uh, and it's really gotten aggressively bad in the last 30 years. So what would the founders make of it? They would say, yes, it's a real crisis. Uh, they'd probably say it was time for an Article 5 convention to try to reform the Constitution. I mean, I think there would be some constitutional reforms that could address this. One of the many problems you have, you asked about Congress, there are very few legislators in Congress or, or staffers who even remember how to do regular order to appropriate normally. That is, you know, we wanted to fund DOD. Here's how we hold DOD's feet to the fire. Now it's just this giant spending bill. And unless everyone signs off on it at the last hour, the government shuts down. It's apocalypse. Uh, it's We've destroyed deliberative government in this country at the national level uh, and in a lot of the states. So uh, as I know I've been sort of ranting about it, but it's a huge problem. Uh, it's one we're always trying to advise people on how to fix. Uh, there is no silver bullet, but it's going to take uh, some serious national leadership and some serious statesmanship uh, to make the case, to sell it, to, to run on it, to win on it, and then to really go about the hard work with reference to the great statesmen and principles uh, throughout American history on how to get it back in some semblance of order. You know, here's what's interesting to me about all this. Uh, it's We've, we've seen uh, our foreign policy be conducted by basically revolution, just overthrowing governments. Um, it's, I think it's really gotten Americans into a frame of mind of thinking that like the only thing that we're really competent at is overthrowing governments. And even that, you know, Libya, uh, not so good. Yeah. Ukraine, uh, maybe not. Uh, but it's a pattern of thinking and it reflects uh, a, a way in which uh, the, the competence of the people in charge of the notional statesmen um, they're forgetting how to do things. They're forgetting how to perform the, the job of, of statecraft. Yeah. Uh, and so when you're sort of narrowing it down in that way, you look at some of the, the political problems that plagued the old world. And it was this pattern where things would slowly get worse and then they get to a point and then people would sort of rise up oh, and they march on the Capitol and maybe they'll overthrow, you know, uh, the, the, the government and the, at the Capitol. Maybe they won't. Um, but that was kind of their only, whether it's France or Germany, mm -hmm. just the whole 19th century, this is, that was the, the kind of pattern. A lot of people came to the U.S. to escape that kind of pattern. The Latin America has suffered that kind of thing, too. Uh, and so it's understandable that, you know, folks on the left are just being kept up at night by thoughts of, you know, the, the pitchfork people just sort of uh, yeah. bayonetting uh, AOC or whatever. And then people on the right are being kept up at night thinking about the woke mob and Antifa just sort of eating the, the government. 
Um, I, I get it. There's the historical pattern there. Uh, but the U.S. is is a unique country. We have sort of unique uh, origin story, uh, unique scale and power and, and vigor in, in world history. Uh, and so as we're headed into this crisis territory, it's not always so easy to, to handicap or to guess or predict how it's going to shake out. Um, so one thing that I, you know, I've been thinking about is, um, are there even enough Americans to be bothered sort of dragging themselves up out of bed from mm. off the couch, from behind their phones, uh, to really engage in sort of serious civil unrest? It almost seems more plausible to me that at a time when you know, people, people can't buy a house, the mortgage rates are too high, uh, the, the economy's too unstable, they, they don't have enough for stocks, they can't even pay for, for an ambulance ride if they need one. Uh, competence in, in corporate life and in government is, is going down. You got all these, these aircraft accidents and near collisions. And that's just, you know, one symbol of sort of like the ice cream machine doesn't work at the McDonald's. This is becoming the pattern of life. And a lot of people just, just sort of like wake me up when it's over, you know? Yeah. Um, are we looking at a situation where it's, it's plausible that instead of all of this coming to some sort of explosive crescendo, it's just going to kind of be like a long period of, of petering out and losing our, losing our mojo, losing our will to carry on, uh, just sort of a great stagnation. Oh, that's certainly possible. I know <clears throat> some of our mutual friends think uh, that's something more acute is on the horizon uh, from the left. I don't know. I'm, I color me maybe skeptical three days a week and maybe more convinced uh, the other four. I'm not sure. No, a 50-year muddling along decline is completely possible. I mean, you're one of your uh, great teachers and mine as well, Tocqueville talked about when you have the rise of the central administrative power doing more and more and more, uh, the appetite, the um, the proclivity, the uh, the experience of normal citizens ruling themselves and thus ruling uh, in a civically responsible way, not necessarily rising up with pitchforks, but just being in command of themselves, their communities, and and being interested enough to push up something like a movement for real change declines and declines and declines. Uh, and that is not helped at all by uh, you know the smartphone, uh, the rise of recreational drug use, the endless endless amounts of entertainment, whether on the phone or otherwise. You know, the the bread and circuses thing is effective. Uh, it's a great way to distract the populace. Uh, and I'm not saying well. There's an elite in D.C. And, and across the country, really, that would think this conversation we're having is very odd, right? They're, they're quite wealthy. They think government mostly works for them. They know how to get things done when they need to. Uh, they know how to fix policy when they need to. So this is, um, that's, that's the great challenge of our time, I think, is uh, a, somehow a national leader or leaders breaking through the iron grip of elite dominance uh, in all these areas that we've been talking about, and really mustering the will on this, and the will and the best sort of reason of the people to fix this problem and to stand behind someone who promises them that he will fix it, he or she will fix it. Um, in a way, that's the challenge always of states, statesmanship in a democracy or a republic. In in a one like ours, that's still fabulously wealthy, huge, both in terms of you know, spanning a continent uh, and uh, in terms of population, you know, it's just a, it's a monumental task. And uh, I think maybe, I mean, that might be part of it. Things might have to get a lot worse before you really have the chance to make the case that you're the one or your coalition or your new party or whatever are the ones that can help lead the charge to fix it. I mean, life in America is still pretty good. Uh, in the run of human history, 
pretty, pretty good. I mean, that's part of the problem too, is you, you pitch this to normal Americans. I just mean normal by just folks who are trying to make a living, live their lives. The people you described, you know, call me when it's over and they may have some sense that there's a crisis, but what can they do about it? And even then, you know, they have the friend, their friends and family are pretty good. They've got a house. Yeah. Interest rates are high, but it's still, it still looks nothing to them like an acute crisis that really affects them here and now. Um, when that comes, you might have a lot more possibilities, uh, and it will be, uh, you know, it will be a time both of great crisis and great danger, but also great opportunity. Well, we haven't talked about the states yet. We still have yeah. states. Uh, I think there's been a lot of <laughs> a lot of fear over the past, you know, 25 years or, or maybe longer that that the states would just be kind of wiped out and totally defanged. But it's actually been like a, on balance, not a bad time for states. I mean, Gavin Newsom can attest to this. Yes, it's a special circumstance, but it wasn't that long ago when he was like, California is a nation state, and we're going right. to do things the Californian way. Obviously, Texas has a long tradition. I mean, what Ron DeSantis did in Florida, you know, these are like real achievements, and mm-hmm. they're the, and they're ongoing. Uh, the state, state legislatures, governor's mansions, these are places where uh, as the, the sort of great suck just continues to slow things down, weigh things down, distract people, dispirit them, these could be places that are like competent sinks where you can actually gather some people together. Uh, you know, yeah, maybe for the purpose of thumbing their nose at the feds, but really more fundamentally just for the purpose of self-government, for, for competent self-government that respons- is responsive to the needs of the, the people on the ground uh, who you might actually, God forbid, spend some time around. Right. Um, let's talk about the states. Uh, Claremont's doing doing some work with with at, at the state level, um, mm-hmm. and it is important in those ways. So, uh, how optimistic are you about uh, the role that states can play in sort of riding the ship here? Uh, I'm bullish on the states and somewhat bearish on the prospects for national politics. Look, we're still going to stay in both games and try to help anyone who wants to do good. Uh, but I'm I'm bullish on the states because, as you say, um, there's. Uh, COVID accelerated a, a trend that was already started. Uh, our friend Matt Peterson has talked about this a lot. Um, <clears throat> known here around the blaze, of course, new, new newly uh, editor-in-chief. Um, you know, uh, that... Uh, I lost my train of thought. Yeah, the states... Um, there was COVID accelerated this trend, right? The great sort is happening. I mean, California is losing population for the first time in its history. It's losing congressional seats. It will lose more in 10 years. Uh, Despite what Newsom says about California being an awesome place to live, the middle class is fleeing it like the plague. And they're going to places like Florida, Texas, North Carolina, Tennessee. Uh, We all know the list. We all know friends who've moved there. I think that creates great opportunities to uh, show rather than tell how you fix American Republicanism, and it starts at the local level. And it will you'll cook. and when you do really creative things, as DeSantis has found out, as Abbott has found out, um, you know you're gonna st- you're gonna get slapped down by district courts. Uh, the federal government is gonna start to take notice of you, and it will offer you the wonderful uh, teaching moments of drama that is clash between you and the feds. Uh, the Federalist Papers, James Madison, Hamilton, others talked about the states being a bulwark against abuses by the feds, interposing themselves between the federal government and uh, and their citizens and protecting their citizens from the abuses of the fed, federal government. I think states are just starting to feel uh, their their power on this issue as they realize the depth of the crisis that's confronting us, whether it's in education, uh, the rise of sort of crazy racialized wokeness in education, or name name any other number of issues. And so with some states leading, like Texas, Florida, and others um, that aren't as big, I think it will be an opportunity to show folks how competent government is done, like you said, 
Um, and the, the government, you know, the federal government, it's this weird combination of malevolence and incompetence just for its sheer size. And, you know, it's a just a, it's a giant iceberg uh, of a battle carrier. I mean, mix your metaphors all you want. It's this huge thing. It takes a while for it to turn. Yes, it can crush things very easily, but it's not that uh, adept and it's not that agile. And it really, it, it's struggling to confront a lot of the problems that we're facing today. Um, and, uh, and so that will offer huge opportunities for the states. And out of those states, will national leaders should be able to emerge and uh, then translate that sort of argument and that sort of action to the national stage. Vladimir Putin called the U.S. dollar's drop in dominance objective and irreversible during the recent BRICS summit in South Africa, as Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa formally agreed to use local currencies instead of the U.S. dollar. It's the first shoe to fall. As demand for the dollar weakens, the buying power of the dollar weakens. That's why Birch Gold Group is busier than ever. Investors and savers are looking to harness the power of physical gold, held in a tax-sheltered IRA. Text James to 989898 for your free info kit on gold. With thousands of happy customers, an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau, and countless five-star reviews, you can count on Birch Gold to help you navigate transitioning an existing IRA or 401k into an IRA in gold. As the U.S. dollar continues to receive pressure from foreign countries, digital currency, and central banks, arm yourself with information on how to protect your savings. Text James to 989898 to claim your free info kit now. I just want to loop back again to this question of ambition and ambition well expressed, let's yeah. say. Uh, it's um, even, even within, uh, I, I think, uh, GOP circles, uh, younger guys who understand the situation that we're in, the importance of the states, uh, I think even in some of those circles, the attitude is like, well, you know, state legislature, not exactly where I want to be putting my time and energy, right. not very sexy, not as high tier, you know, not a place for ambitious guys. Uh, governor's mansion is a little bit different, but there is this kind of this uh, soft bigotry of low expectations <laughs> around the states. Uh, and, and it's true that, you know, even if, if the meme is right, that dudes rock, like it's it's kind of not a super exciting time for dudes in America right now. They're just all these traditional roles for guys. And while there's a problem with all of them, like, oh, military, that's bad. Priests, they're bad. You know, a strong father, you know, uh-uh. That's, you know, it's just sort of one by one by one by one. Uh, so what, what's a young dude to do? And uh, and a lot of these guys are saying like, well, maybe if I just like talk about Nietzsche on the internet a lot, like that'll <laughs> sort of satisfy my my thumos, my, my ambition. Uh, but for a lot of young guys, um, they're looking at tech. They're looking at Silicon Valley and mm. and this sort of mushrooming thing that is coming out of Silicon Valley. Uh, they're saying like, well, you know, here's here's a place where it's okay to build weapons, or like here's a place where it's okay to want to like conquer the stars, or maybe here's mm. a place where it's okay for me to actually like maybe build some wealth. Um, all of these promises, and so there's a lot kind of hanging on those those hopes. And I think that in in the 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 movement on the right, there's also been this kind of a little bit of a love-hate, sort of hopeful but fearful uh, relationship with with technology and the technologists. Uh, whether it's a guy like Elon Musk mm -hmm. or you know, casting around looking for for someone to ride over the hill and be that champion, uh, more and more guys are kind of looking in that direction. Uh, even though it's you know not traditionally associated with uh, guys who sit in front of a computer all day, mm -hmm. uh, they're not exactly going to look like the white knight coming over the horizon. 
but maybe that's the situation we're in. Uh, how do how do you handicap that kind of like like where Silicon Valley is going? Is it is it helping? Is it hurting? Um, and is it is this an area where uh, you feel bullish about uh, the relationship between uh, technological progress and uh, sort of moving politically in the direction we need to go? Uh, well, it's a it's a mixed bag to say the least because um, the mastery, the technical mastery of Silicon Valley over things like mass communication, um, you know, pick, I mean, social media, of course, is on everyone's minds for, for obvious reasons. Uh, their, their mastery behind the scenes of it offers um, a huge opportunity for a public-private partnership between the, mo- the forces of the modern state and technology. And we see that in the Twitter files and elsewhere. So for now, I'm, I'm how do I handicap it? It seems to me like big tech for a lot of the same reasons that I pointed out about the Uniparty's interests, financial and otherwise, for now uh, is allied with big bad government. Uh, not all big government is bad, but our, our current big government is bad in many ways. For now, they seem, not all of them, but a lot of them seem allied with big government. I think the one ray of hope or few rays of hope would be folks like Musk and others who really do at fundamentally... Um, and he's not the only one, he just is the biggest one, it seems, uh, want to transform, uh, well, want to do transformative things, want to conquer the stars, want to use technology to elevate the human spirit and to be excellent, you know, to be the best that they can be at what they do, to use it to improve lives, health, uh, improve transportation, all these sorts of material parts of well-being, which you cannot neglect. Uh, I think they will see they will see the ideological colonization that's taking place from the government and the intellectual class of their sphere. That is technology, you know, big tech, for lack of a better catch-all term. They will see that as a, as standing in the way of them being their most excellent selves. So that old, that really ancient human desire to excel, especially at the top levels of performance, whether it be athletic, intellectual, or otherwise. I hope will convince a big portion of this influential, wealthy, and interesting and intelligent community that um, one way lies more or less madness and or peonage ultimately for them, and the other way that is the side of liberty. Uh, the the old we could refresh them on what natural rights mean and how they apply in a digital age. Uh, and I know it's been one of your projects. Uh, I hope that that side grows in strength and realizes that they, they just are not going to be able to do what they do, and they're not going to be able to be excellent in the ways that they want to be and flourish in the ways that they want to flourish if they, if they don't really start pushing back against this. And, and creating technological tools, whether it be in the material, intellectual, or political realm, that help um, restore the American way of life and the American regime at its best, uh, including in some of the ways that the founders thought but reapplied for, for new times. So that's my hope. So I... Uh, you know, I, I think for now, um, I, I would put the, I would handicap uh, in the sense that uh, you know most of big tech, not most, but a, maybe a super majority is is not quite there yet. But I think there are rumblings that are encouraging and positive. Uh, you said yourself, Claremont is of course not a business. It's five hundred one c three. Yeah. Um, so you're not in the business of doing uh, <laughs> endorsements, candidate endorsements, yeah. any of that. Uh, nevertheless. Um, of all those those presidential candidates right now in the field, uh, there's one guy who's who's really the most closely associated with that kind of tech world, and that is Vivek Ramaswamy, um, and he's just out there saying things uh, that I know um, supporters of other candidates wish their guy was saying. Yeah. 
um, you go wind the clock back and he was saying some other stuff and that makes some people upset and I, I get it. But at the same time, is it not remarkable that uh, out of the whole field, he's sort of the guy who's just out there now day in and day out being very articulate about uh, the, the opportunities for that kind of energy coming out of mm -hmm. tech and the energy coming out of you know, the, the younger ranks of the right to, be, to make a, a coherent policy approach. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, it's, it's obvious that Vivek, who anyone who knows his sort of career in biotech, knows that among his other talents, he was a very good salesman for the companies that he was helping to found and run. Um, so it's not, he's a very talented communicator. And uh, one, of our, one of our mutual friends who will remain unnamed said that the Ramaswamy, it's, it's really a communications operation without a campaign, uh, but it's very effective. And he's a very effective communicator. So uh, I, I, don't, I haven't looked at any of the polling amongst young folks or whatever to see how Vivek is breaking through. But I know anecdotally, a lot of concerned citizens who are, you know, elite types, uh, maybe some even family members across the country, uh, were are taken by Vivek because he is such a talented communicator and because he seems to speak to these issues that people who are paying attention are very, very concerned about and to do it in a way that's more articulate uh, and more to the point and sharper than the other candidates. So it's very interesting. If nothing else, his run, which I think is a kind of, really is a comms operation rather than a serious run of president, Forgive me, Vivek, if you're watching, but that's what I think is going on. Uh, if it's if it's able to push the others in the right direction and help people learn how to talk about this better, uh, that will be a great good that he's done. You mentioned the young folks. How do you, how do you feel about the the kiddos, the the rising generations? <laughs> uh, I don't know. I mean, you look at some of the the polling on their views on social issues, and you worry. Uh, you know, those of us who, who think, um, you know, things like um, abortion, uh, the trans revolution and other things are, are, are not just the latest iteration of progress, but actually portend something much more troubling about how we think about human beings, you, human beings and what they ought to do and men and women and all that, um, the sort of building blocks of society and marriage and all the rest. You look at their views on that and it's not encouraging uh, for the, at the same time, modern woke liberalism, call it whatever you want, uh, especially the leading left edge of it, is really um, uh, unfun, preachy, uh, kind of, and kind of crazy. Uh, you know, I, I think at, at Stanford recently, the, um, their undergrad, the undergraduates at Stanford, some of them basically coming out of COVID student body elections, they ran on let's have fun again. And it was basically a bunch of right-wingers of various stripes and they swept a bunch of office offices at Stanford of all places. So, so I, I don't know. I mean, I think the intelligent youth will rebel against any stifling orthodoxy uh, given the right tools to do so and how to understand it. And I, I think uh, that's why I hold out some hope for the breaking of the spell of, of lame, boring, now establishment progressivism, which is... You know, the establishment in D.C. is now left-wing progressivism. Uh, so I think a healthy rebellion against that uh, wouldn't be that unexpected amongst the youth. You know, every time I see some more gnashing of teeth about how Claremont is this scary organization, uh, I think about, you know, you got young people on the left saying, um, not only are rights real, but I have a right to force you to love me. 
And then you got the young guys on the right who are like, this is all fantasy. Yeah. It doesn't really there exist. There are no rights. Yeah. It's all just will. It's yeah. just power, man. Yeah. There are no rights at all. And Claremont's sitting here in the middle going like, you know what, you guys, like natural rights are real. They actually exist. We can reason about them. They can serve as a foundation for a certain kind of politics. And, you know, maybe you can't just like just plop it on top of any society in the world and expect yeah. it to be flowers and roses um, or hearts and flowers, whatever the saying is. Um, give us a little potted defense, a case for natural rights. Yeah, well, we in, in a sort of um, uh, half-articulated way, everyone knows what natural rights are. I mean, we can know certain things about being human. Uh, we have bodies. Uh, we have to work. We have to feed ourselves. We have to, uh, at least for now, to build families, we have to couple with the opposite sex. Uh, there are certain things that we know by nature. We know that we're all rational human beings and not dogs or pigs or horses. So in that whole family of humanity, uh, there's a certain set of obligations uh, and rights that one owes one another if you're going to live non-tyrannically with one another. The old, uh, the old adage is that, you know, I, I, uh, I cannot rule you without your consent because at a certain fundamental level, we're equally rational human beings. Now, there are always breaches at the margins, you know, you have, uh, you know, mentally defective folks, you have children, uh, you have people who are not fit to live in human society, psychopaths, etc. But the, the, the basic rule is we are not gods and we are not beasts. So in this in-between world, we have certain obligations to each other, and that does not include ruling each other without consent that is enslaving one another. So that's the sort of basis for natural rights. Um, what grows out of it is social compact that is we all get together in a place, geographic place, where we all happen to be and decide that we ought, we ought to pursue justice somehow together. We lay down some groundwork, ground rules, and we have government by consent and some structure of government. I mean, that's basically the theory of the Declaration of Independence, that when governments are destructive of natural rights and become tyrannical, it's the right and the duty of the people to figure out a way to overthrow that and found something new. Uh, this all goes back to you know some political philosophers in the 17th century, but it's the, the notion that justice transcends place, time, and government, that we can have some natural standard for judging right and wrong, something that we can know about humanity and that we can then apply to politics and say, this is how we ought to structure government in this place, given this people, and do the most good while we can. That notion of natural right, natural justice, uh, is thousands of years old, uh, and the, the um, in a world transformed by monotheism and Christianity uh, and the wars of religion in England and elsewhere, natural rights is what we've had for the last few centuries here in the Western Anglosphere. Uh, but it's rooted in that deeper notion that you can know what's right and wrong, uh, either biblically, so reason, you know, revelation can help you, or, or through reason, uh, because we know what we are, in a way because we have insider knowledge of what we are, because we are what we are. So that's what natural rights is or are. <laughs> a revolutionary doctrine, to be sure. Um, in the uh, last last moments we've got here, uh, can you share anything of, of the game plan for the next four or five years for Claremont, uh, the time when everything seems to be up in the air? Yeah, well, our, uh, you mentioned our work in the States. My, my colleague, Scott Yenner, is our senior director for state coalitions. He's based in Tallahassee, but he's doing work uh, in many other states, Alabama, Texas, and elsewhere. Scott's specialty is education policy, but he's really a conduit for us to state legislators to help them think through these problems. So I'm very bullish on that project. We just need to, you know, raise more resources to make it bigger and better and faster. 
but then at the national level, I mean, you do have this can, um, cohort of folks in the Senate, in the House, uh, at other think tanks with staffers who feel this problem acutely, the problem of sort of overbearing uh, woke liberalism and what to do about it, and the, the, the sort of tangible ways in which it's destroying family life, destroying our ability to understand who we are as human beings and as men and women and how we ought to operate as families, how we ought to operate our border, you know, um, on all these issues that seem existential for the right. I think there's a growing movement to um, really do something about that. And we're going to stay at the center of that conversation with a lot of allies who are working on that as well. Um, a lot of them taking cues from the educational programs we've run for 40 years now. You know, we have over 900 alumni that went through our programs and are working at think tanks. They're working on the Hill. They were in, you know, they were in and will be in presidential administrations. So that, that national project will stay the same. And then finally, I, I, we just, our core business is teaching. We teach in a lot of different venues. We write to teach, we teach directly in, in fellowship programs. We need to reach more and more audiences to try to teach this legacy, this sort of intellectual and political legacy that helped make America the greatest force for good and the richest uh, superpower in the history of the world. Um, we need to get back to our roots on those issues. Uh, it's stuff that's not taught in college much or law school much or graduate school much, except by a few of our friends at various institutions. So there's just if I had $100 million, I would need more to do more teaching and to help people understand what our crisis is and, and how to fix it. And how to and in so doing, do great good uh, for both themselves, uh, for their countrymen, and for their posterity. Well, it's a perennial problem generation by generation, but in the end, it's a good problem to have. Uh, and if you can uh, be, be a part of the solution, all the better. Uh, it's... Uh, it's a country that isn't going to refresh itself automatically, uh, especially you know one like ours where you actually have to kind of know a thing or two about uh, how the world works and, and how your, your own government works in order to keep uh, self-government going. So, Ryan Williams, thank you very much for joining us. That's literally all the time we've got, at least until next time around. So, if you found this conversation meaningful, and who wouldn't, please consider becoming a Blaze TV subscriber. Help us create more content just like this. Go to blazetv.com. Use the code 0hour20, Z-E-R-O-H-O-U-R-2-0 for $20 off your first year of Blaze TV. This is Zero Hour. I'm James Polis, and may God have mercy on us all.